The list of maternal and neonatal morbidity from gestational diabetes is oppressive. Yet there is good evidence that aggressive glucose control can result in healthy outcomes that rival those of non-diabetic pregnancies. You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University. This month is Diabetes Month here at XM157. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Moore, professor and chairman of the Department of Reproductive Medicine, University of California School of Medicine at San Diego. He is a nationally recognized expert on the diagnosis and treatment of diabetes in pregnancy. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you. Let's distinguish between the two groups of pregnant diabetics when we talk about treatment, those who've had pre-existing disease and those who developed the disease during the third trimester. What about the newly diabetic during pregnancy? What are some of the general principles of treatment? Well, actually, I think in that particular group, the biggest problem is the social and cultural adaptation to the idea that I feel fine, but my glucoses are high and it's endangering my baby. So the therapy begins with helping the patient understand how uncontrolled glucose is having an adverse effect on her unborn. Actually, women are so motivated to have a good outcome of their pregnancy, it doesn't take a whole lot of instruction, but we can't blame them for not getting it the first time. And so it's kind of a message that has to be repeated, always in a cheerful, you know, think of what your terrible things you're doing to your baby, but on the other hand is really saying, you know, this is something that's very manageable and something that your baby doesn't have to experience if you can control your glucose values. Well, what about a trip to the dietitian and an AccuCheck four times a day? It's kind of hard to forget about your glucose if you're checking four times a day. The problem of gaining compliance with checking glucose is because we all know we don't want to weigh ourselves after we had the big meal, and it's the same thing with the patient. Reinforcing how these are positive health behaviors for her and her baby, I think it gets these things done. I would say, you know, I haven't, we haven't calculated this recently for our population, but I would say of the four glucose values that we'd like in every day with a patient with gestational diabetes, uh, we get about 80% of them, and I think that's enough for us to manage them very effectively. What about this idea of checking four times a day? Is there any role for checking uh, fasting and postprandial once a week if they're only mild, or does everybody nowadays get an AccuCheck four times a day? Well, you know, that would be a good study to perform to see if you could get it done on a smaller number. Actually, an unpublished study that we did with a sister hospital in our program with diabetes, we were doing the four checks a day. The other group were doing a fasting and a postprandial just when they came in for a clinic visit. And then they were sending, they would have the patient do the fasting, have them go to the hospital cafeteria and eat breakfast, and then check their glucoses. The results were quite remarkable in that the group who was only getting checked whenever the visit was taking place grew much fatter babies and higher C-section rates. So the whole business of checking the glucoses probably makes a difference. Margarita Deviciana did a nice study in which she compared checking after a meal or before a meal because until maybe 15 years ago, a lot of endocrinologists simply had the patients check before their meal so they would know how much insulin to deliver or whatever. And she showed that checking after a meal alters behavior in terms of feeding and therefore alters the glucose values and showed, again, a marked difference compared to the women who checked after a meal than before. 
I think one take-home message is checking sugars twice a week is not as good as checking 28 times a week. I think that's one take-home message. And the other take-home message is checking after meals probably has more merit and might actually have some effect on behavior than checking the sugar before the meal. Is that fair? I think it's very fair. Is there a role for diet alone in the treatment or management of gestational diabetes? Does everybody need insulin? No. Luckily, I think depending on what target glucose value thresholds are used for describing uh, the need for medicine, that in our, in our practice, 50% of patients are able to maintain simply dietary measures. In many other practices, it's uh, insulin or other medications are only invoked in about 30% of the cases. So really, at least uh, probably a majority of women should be able, through lifestyle interventions, be able to control their glucoses adequately. Now, while we're talking about lifestyle interventions, one intervention is, of course, exercise. There's some literature that shows that exercise in the third trimester actually reduces birth weight. I don't know how conclusive this evidence is, but there certainly is some. So how do you counsel your pregnant diabetics in the third trimester? Is this the time to start exercising, or can they continue running an hour a day, or is this a time where they really have to probably not exercise as much as they were. You've drawn a good point here about the issue of significant exercise, and James Clapp did a nice study among marathon runners and those who continued running and those who didn't, and there was a significant decrease in birth weight in that group. That's obviously not at all the group that we're dealing with who are largely obese with gestational diabetes. In our own practice, we did an experiment where we gave people pedometers, and we asked them to put on a uh, half mile a day. And we found that the greater the body mass index, the very less likely that individuals were able to do really any exercise at all. So, uh, you know, I think that the kind of exercise, walking exercise, swimming exercise, even biking exercise, and I'll come back and talk about the bike in a minute, all of these things have benefits far beyond the calorie utilization involved in the exercise itself. And that is that even a modest degree of exercise, the old taking the dogs around the block at a decent pace, will actually improve insulin resistance. And anything that we can do to improve insulin resistance is going to make glucose control better. Louis Jovanovich actually studied bicycling exercise in type 1 diabetic women and showed that there were heart rate changes in women who were doing vigorous bicycling exercise in the third trimester. That may be related to, you know, uptake of oxygen into these big legs, uh, big muscles of the legs, and sort of a uterine steel. So we don't recommend in women who are not trained, and that experiment was in women who were not trained. Women who are not trained, we don't recommend starting a huge exercise regimen, but uh, very satisfactory and gratifying results can be obtained with more moderate levels of exercise. In terms of exercise, do you ever give a pulse threshold that pregnant women are not supposed to exceed, or do you even bother? Well, actually, we do only in very fit women who are continued to push themselves during pregnancy, and we usually tell them 80% of their max based on their age. Most women are quite happy to stay within that boundary. Again, for the patients we're talking about, 95% of women with gestational diabetes, they have a very sedentary lifestyle. And I think this is another take-home message about gestational diabetes. This is an opportunity for the individuals who are setting themselves up for downstream overt type 2 diabetes later in life and heart disease, this is an opportunity at a receptive time in life to really get started with developing some lifestyles that will be beneficial later. 
What about some of the principles of managing insulin during gestational diabetes? Is a postprandial threshold at which insulin is particularly started, and then is there a one-size-fits-all sort of split-dose regimen, or do the number of doses vary by individual? How does that work? The way I like to think about it is if the glucose is above normal, then the fetus is being exposed to that extra glucose and has to store it. And the storing of the glucose is not good. So how can we go about trying to normalize glucose to the greatest extent possible? So that's just a matter of looking at what the glucose levels are and uh, treating them back down to something reasonable. Now, until recently, we really didn't have very good information about what, believe it or not, what normal glucose levels are in non-diabetic pregnant women. An old study by Hollingsworth and Cousins actually turned out to be pretty close to right on. But two recent large studies, one performed in Italy and the other in Israel, have shown that the fasting blood sugar of a woman getting up in the morning, non-diabetic pregnant in the third trimester, is 65 plus or minus 5. And the peak blood sugar, the 95th percentile of a postprandial blood sugar, is about 115. So if you think of that band of glucose being what a normal fetus is expecting, and then you try to think about what kind of guidelines you might set. So the typical guidelines that are set for one hour postprandial today are somewhere between 130 and 140 milligrams per deciliter. And for fastings, somewhere 90 to 105. Now, let's just take up the 90, for example. The 90 is very much higher than the average. Now, we pick a higher target number, of course, so that on the odd day we don't get symptomatic or disastrous hypoglycemia, but probably the 90 number, in my opinion, is too high, and Louis Jovanovich has lowered hers to around the high 70s, and I try to keep my patients down, uh, well down into the lower to mid-80s because we're not even close to the normal situation. The fetus is being exposed to excessive glucose the entire time. So if we have the target band, then it's a matter of looking at each meal, and if more than three out of seven of these meals are above the target, whichever target is chosen, then try to get it down. So we can either get it down by doing some dietary adjustments if there's space in that diet, and you have to look at the diet in order to know if there's place in the diet that you can gain some ground. Obviously, with a fasting glucose, you can't get people up in the middle of the night to walk the dogs around the block, so your fasting glucoses are probably going to require medication. Postprandial blood sugars are going to be amenable to some degree of diet and exercise, but as the relentless increase in pregnancy hormones drives the insulin resistance up, at some point, even the most conscientious individual is probably going to need some form of medication. In terms of insulin, is it normally a split dose morning and night, or is it four times a day, or is it just very individualized? You know, everybody has their own system, I would say, and there are actually some decent randomized data to show that a formula-based insulin delivery is less successful than adjusted dose depending on what a patient's individual physiology is. I have women in my practice who are taking 40 or 50 units of NPH at bedtime and no other insulin throughout the rest of the day. Now, why they can keep their glucoses under control during the rest of the day but have this intense hyperglycemia in the morning, I could not tell you. But that's their individual metabolism. So I think it really does need to be individualized. We need to know what each meal is doing. I find that working women have a lot of problems with their post-lunch glucoses because they tend to eat in restaurants or have food in the workplace, and it makes it difficult 
difficult. And, of course, the American dinner is always a challenge. Whereas the breakfast, in which we normally take fewer calories than any other meal, has the most intense insulin resistance. The insulin resistance in the morning is 50% higher than it is in the evening. So the amount of carbohydrates that we can take in the morning is much reduced compared to the evening. Or, conversely, another way to say it would be you need much more insulin given in the morning than you need in the evening. So to have a formula-based administration of insulin has been shown to not be effective. And instead, we should be looking at where the baby is being exposed to excessive glucose and take steps to minimize that. I want to thank Dr. Thomas Moore, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the treatment of gestational diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We would really like to hear from you. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. We do read your mail please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening.